This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fury, and this is Blackballed. The Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, what is it, four or five months ago now? And it was a different type of war for, especially for those of us who don't really understand the complexities of warfare. Um, you had two European countries, one of them um, a former superpower, kind of a renegade rogue state these days. Um powered by corruption and oligarchs, dirty money, all of that kind of stuff. And and on the Ukrainian side, a, a leader that sort of, um, you know, was started to become inspiring for a lot of people. But somewhere around the arguments around NATO and Russia and, and you know, the conflicting sort of elements that um, those bodies have been dealing with for decades – there is a, an interesting sort of caveat on how this war is being fought. And to people like myself who, who have no expertise in warfare at all, I found it very difficult to understand, which is why I booked my next guest. He is considered one of the most foremost experts in the world on urban warfare. And he is also the author of this book. It's called Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and the Social Connections in Modern War. And his name is John Spencer. John, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? Hey, James. Great. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. I, I was really interested in having you for, for a couple of reasons. And, and the first reason was the urban warfare expertise. But before we get to that, the, the book that you wrote that I just mentioned, Connected Soldiers, Life Leadership and Social Connections in Modern War, I read the summary of it and I was kind of blown away. I, I, was, I was taken aback. You did a tour in Iraq in 2003. And... When you went back, and, and sorry, and when you went there, the, there was there was sort of the, the the type of things that I'm familiar with, honestly, from movies, right? Which is that connection to the soldiers beside you, which is that you know you might you you'll be fighting in a war in a place like Iraq, and you won't necessarily um, be thinking about the policy that got you there. You'll be thinking about protecting your brother or sister to the right or left of you, and that's what allows you to face your fear when you're fighting. But then there was something else that caught my attention in the summary, which was that when you went back for another tour, what was it, five years later? Yeah, five years. You noticed the big difference in the way that the soldiers spent their downtime. Um, the first tour that you went, you I, well, I took away from the, that summary is that the first time that you went, you had a... Um, on your downtime, you, you were still with your brothers and you connected with them. And that's sort of how you developed the, the kind of passion that you would need to, to fight for them as if they were your family. But when you went back five years later, 
the difference between the downtime especially was that they were spending a lot of their times isolated to themselves either you know watching media or talking to their family and that became something um that you found to be a little bit not disturbing i don't know what the right word is but uh, you know you, you didn't find that that was the best way to be a soldier can you can you expand on that because i found that really interesting sure so like you said in 2003 it was the war that we all expect in war where there is this, this element of seclusion of the soldiers right you go off to this faraway land you do your mission um, and you're fighting for a, a whole host of reasons but there's a, an element of seclusion and you're you know i start off with some geeky data about research like soldiers it is true that's just not romanticism soldiers are willing to die for the people left to the left and right and there's a whole bunch of psychology physiology all that to that um you know sitting around a campfire sitting around a humvee eating together just spending mindless hours together getting to know people um, becoming friends also understanding that you can't win without the other person to your left and right in, in horrible situations when I went back in 2008, of course, it was a different army. It was a different war. It was a different world we lived in where soldiers weren't deployed in, a, in, in seclusion, right? You deployed and you basically went to stable areas where you had 24-hour connection. This is 2008. Um, you had constant connection. As soon as you came back from a mission, you could get online and talk to your, your loved ones about that. And what I found, and I, not until I looked back and started reflecting, right, my book is mostly a memoir, but through the, the eyes of you know, having a foot in both worlds that soldiers do, and this is before, and we can talk about Ukraine, it really complicates um, the creating the bonds that do allow for soldiers to fight and die for each other. It complicates actually fighting the wars when your soldier can now get a message from home immediately before going outside the wire or outside on that patrol and it directly impacts their performance um and it's just it, it works the other way too it, it impacts the families so there's there's these huge pluses and minuses that i i don't think people were realizing were happening as the world was changing and now if you look at it, ukraine right i wrote this book before covid and i wrote this book before ukraine and everything i wrote and it, it really you know just further cements into me that um humans need physical connections uh and there's a time and a place for all connections you're never going to turn this off but leaders in the military and and you can transfer that to business do have to decide ensuring that people are connected to what matters most in war that's pretty straightforward but even in war it's really hard to do yeah it, it, it's and into a, a a layman like myself who has no idea um what military culture is like just theoretically it seems like it might be might be bad for morale it could be both like bad and good and 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 good right if, if i can get a message you know, like we've seen in ukraine if you can rapidly spread a message to every single soldier in your military instantaneously that that could increase morale mm -hmm. if you're in a foreign land and you're fighting for your family and you can talk to them that helps morale. Now, if the family is under distress, it adds to your stress and can impact morale. Or if you learn about a loss immediately, well, let's say you're a Russian and you just you just found out they sunk your your most prized flagship. Uh, if if the Russians were connected 
as American soldiers or Ukrainian soldiers would be, you can see how that could both help morale, but also could be could impact morale. And morale is a feeling, and that's why I really I try to focus on cohesion because morale can go, it can be day to day. Morale can go up and it can go down. Things that impact morale can be everything from food to messages from home. Yeah, I feel like if I had to talk to my wife after I came back from a night of, um, you know, shooting bad guys that, um, well, it probably just wouldn't be good for anybody over at, uh, at the military base. <laughs> my, aim, my aim would be shaky because I'd just still be angry from talking. Right. Yeah. I, I write about in the book where, you know, I'm a stay-at-home dad and my wife goes off the work because she's active duty military now. And it was impacting family life. It was impacting my kids' daily lives, talking to mom in war in a stable place for most part every day. So it's just a reality of the world we live in. It's impacting soldiers, but it should impact you know, all of our you know, closeness to, to war. And there's, there's positives and negatives to that as well. Yeah. There's a, I, and I, I can tell by the comments, I'll stop making wife jokes in this context, guys. Sorry about that. Um, but, uh, but it reminded me of athletics. I don't know if you've ever been involved in sports teams, but we, when we played baseball when we were young, um, I had a coach that wouldn't let us bring our girlfriends to tournaments. You oh. know, they, your head isn't in the game, they would say. And, um, and, I kinda, and it just reminded me of that because, you know, like I, 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 can see the, how, I can see how on an individual basis it could be bad or good. So there isn't like a right or wrong answer for everybody. But I think you're I think the the one thing that I that I, I, I either you wrote or someone that reviewed your book wrote, um, they were talking about how, you know, isolating yourself um, can make you a soldier that maybe doesn't have his head in the game, basically. Yes. Absolutely. And that's why your know, war is a team effort. I think you can, there are strong sports analogies when you fight as a team and you only win as a team, like one individual um is a part of the team and they can make or break the team, but also that individual survival is tied to the team. So if their mind is somewhere else and they just mm-hmm. had some crazy amount of news or stresses, uh, it can significantly, and I try to give examples in the book, significantly impact performance and put that soldier's risk, life at risk in the whole team's life at risk. Okay. So uh, let's, um, I, I want to go back to the book at the end because I want to, uh, put a bow on it uh, when we end the conversation as a whole. But let's go to Russia, Ukraine. So what I found out today, as I did my, as I always do, my John Spencer deep dive, that you wrote this. This is called the Mini Manual for the Urban Defender, version four, uh, released in April of this year. And from what I understand, the Ukrainian military have now adopted that as part of their urban warfare strategy, or maybe even the centerpiece. Is that right? I mean, that's a way to to explain it. The I mean, Ukrainian military is getting help from around the world. So my book, which was a, started off with a series of tweets, was really designed for the civilians, really. I mean, they were the Ukrainian president after day one instilled martial law, meaning any adult male from 18 to 60 couldn't leave the country and were told to go out and resist when it was really a, you know, this massive total defense operation. So he, he mobilized millions of civilians. So I started the book for that. But the book, the book evolved to where it was like basic military knowledge as sometimes we assume soldiers know stuff. So, yeah, the Ukrainian Department of Defense, basically, the Ministry of Defense, put it out on a website for resistors, for civilians, within a week or two. Uh, my stuff, that was really humbling. And I started seeing pictures of it. And then the book started getting printed off in the small books. And it was starting to start seeing in checkpoints and things like that. So it was almost like a, a grassroots, but then mobilized institutionally. 
Um, and then a publisher uh, about a month or, you know, about three months ago now asked if I would allow them Ukrainians to publish a hundred thousand copies of it and distribute it to the military. As I've found out, you know, I kept saying like, well, this is for civilians, but then people would ask me to put certain things in it that are more military than civilian related. Um, it is a mix of just very basic stuff. Like don't, don't stand in the open to here's how you run an ambush. Um, but it was designed for civilians, but then started to be used by the military to say it's a primary manual probably isn't accurate. Uh, to say it, there's a hundred over a hundred thousand copies across Ukraine, as far east as Mariupol to Kyiv to Lviv, it is a true statement. What does that do? Again, like so this entire interview is going to be littered with questions from a person who's completely ignorant about everything military. Okay, so but so but when you're talking there, I'm I'm the first thing that came to mind is how does a handbook like that um, reconcile like Geneva Convention laws about civilians and uniforms and things like that? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I, so I ended up starting to put stuff in there because I, you know, I've done this for long enough to know there are laws of, of war, like general laws of war. And then there are the Geneva conventions and protocols and things like that. So I, early on, I put in there the treatment of enemy prisoners of war and how it's a, it's a requirement uh, of, of the law of war and of the Geneva conventions to, to treat enemy prisoners of war humanely as I was really watching the war happening and putting in there. Now, the real answer is once a civilian takes up arms or is a part of an armed conflict in any way, direct participant, they're no longer a civilian. Uh, they're a combatant. So th that's how that translates. And I, um, the, the Ukrainians understood that from, from day one, as you saw from day one, civilians or anybody in any type of unit had a yellow armband, which is a requirement in accordance with the regime. So they were following the rules really from day one like if you're going to participate you have to identify yourself uh so it's just amazing how fast they they were able to do that across every fighting area so, so we can talk about kind of inaccuracies in in the application of that of civilians or civilian fighting in urban areas because that's kind of my thing um in, in people's interpretation of the law the i i, I saw videos of Ukrainians and the military digging trenches around Kyiv uh, when when the war first started, and I, I I started to think to myself, you know, about technology and war, and again, this is my ignorance, but you know, does Russia have the type of military equipment to be able to fight from the air? Like, what is Russia missing? Because I I noticed that you. I don't remember the context, but you were talking about how the Ukrainians are can execute this war in such a way where they would just be leading Russia to a death trap. Do you remember saying yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. No, um, that's the point of the urban areas, right? So the mm -hmm. the the more the bigger military, right? So, so Russia is it, my, it didn't. Yeah, there are some superior technologies that, that Ukraine has that Russia doesn't have, like those ATGMs, you know, the javelins and the stingers and things like that. That. Ukraine just weren't going to compete with. And in the military that was sent into Ukraine was a very large military, but the urban terrain is called the great equalizer. So absolutely. I said that where like they did in Kiev, while I was saying it, um, you can turn the urban terrain into a death trap, really a, what we call a meat grinder to where an untrained, unmotivated military like the Russians will, will feed their soldiers into it which is what they did in Severodonetsk and in Mariupol, they'll feed their soldiers into it just to die. And then they'll, you can make 
a military pay for every inch. So if they want it, um, you can, some of this is just stopping them from going where they want, but you can, if you do it right, um, like I talk about in the book, to be honest about, you know, closing the gates, you know, blocking all the roads and leaving the roads you want open. Um, and then you can create just a massive meat grinder. It's wood like cattle, we have, right? Yeah. Uh, And I I went to Kiev and uh, you might know this. I went to Kiev in June, you know, to try to understand it even better. Right. I study war, I study urban wars, understand how they did it. And that's that's exactly what they did. They blew all the bridges, blocked all the roads, left a few open. The Russians found those few and then entered these death traps. So there's like a home court advantage, right. To, to to that conflict. And that was, would a fair analogy be, um, you know, the way that American military kind of got bogged down. I know it's not urban, but in Vietnam, like it wasn't their terrain. They didn't really know how to handle that terrain in a warfare setting. So when they, you know, when they, when they tried to fight, um, it it ended up being a quagmire in a lot of situations. Is that, is that a home court advantage thing? In some ways it is, but the American military never lost a single battle in, in Vietnam. Um, you can win every battle, but not win the war. And that's right. why in, in, in Ukraine, it, the, the war was won on April 1st. The, the war for the survival of Ukraine as a nation was was won when Kiev defended us. You know, it, was, it never fell. If Kiev would have fell on, on you know, March 1st, the war would have ended. And you, know, you would have had a, a very strong resistance. So this is the bridge that I try to do is this is, you know, some of my professor stuff from West Point, understanding strategic goals that get translated to military goals that go all the way down the tactics. Um, some right. people it's called a bridge, actually being able to bridge that gap, you know, Vietnam, the Vietnamese and the, you know, the, the Viet Cong and the, and the VA had there's home court advantage. There was porous, porous porous borders advantage right if you can always reinforce and resupply your forces you're fighting it's going to be really hard to ever destroy them but it wasn't a train-based war vietnam was a war for legitimacy for you know, creating a, a nation in a conflicted area and, and there's a lot of bad history in trying to do that yeah that's not really a uh, a winner's hand right no it's 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 again this is where people get frustrated about iraq and afghanistan you know, it's 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 not it's not a debate. It's a put state the fact the the strategic goal that was the military was asked to accomplish. Militaries will win wars, uh, but wars are politics. It's their political goals. Yeah, in both those wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, it seemed like the the initial goals of both those wars were were they they succeeded rather early. But then they stayed for two decades. Yeah, they tried to nation build. And, and yeah. nation building is a dark road to go down with there is success in this in, in you know British imperialism, Roman imperialism. There's some success in building nations, but um building a thriving democracy in a place where it's never been before doesn't always work out. Um Sometimes I listen to people who are anti-war talk about the military and um, they leave out a very important context, which is that the soldiers don't choose the policy that gets them into the conflict to begin with. How often, if at all, do soldiers ever think of why they're there? And 
circling back to what you had said at the beginning of, the, of this discussion, is it just far better for them to think about their brothers and not the reason why they were sent there? No, I mean, so this, and I talk from personal experiences, being a part of the invasion in 2003, you know, soldiers will are fighting for a complex list of reasons. They're fighting for nation, being a part of a, of an, a military, executing the orders that they're given. They're fighting for each other, right? That's that we'll die for each other. But they do care about why they're there. Um, they do care about their... So there's, there's there's three populations in war, and people also forget that. It's not just the militaries that are fighting in wars. Mm-hmm. It's the military, the politicians, and the populace that supports their deployment of them. And they soldiers care about all three of those. You know, Maybe if it's a private on the front line, he won't be connected to that. But I... Even I struggled as a low-level commander in Iraq in 2008, convincing people why we were fighting. Of course, they were fighting because for you know for a job, for for nation, for freedom, for human rights. I mean, it's it's a complex question, but soldiers care about it, uh, and the good commanders are the ones who can translate. This is why we are fighting, and, and some of that can be for the political goal, but it's also it's complex, right? I, I was in Iraq to fight for human rights. I mean, I, I was welcomed by parades in 2003 because people were being massacred and there were, it was an evil di- dictatorship. Now, is that the reason we stayed in Iraq? Arguably, I mean, it that gets into the politics. Yeah. The reason why, the reason why the United States and the, um, the coalition uh, invaded Iraq is still something that bothers me. They be just because of you know the Bush administration really did a number on the uh, the messaging and um, without actually stating that Saddam was responsible for nine eleven, their messaging made half your country believe that Saddam was one of the reasons that that nine eleven happened. And uh, it, but it's funny because I was always against the the war in Iraq. But if there was one person that made me think twice and really hard about my position on that, it was Christopher Hitchens. Um, and I don't know if you followed his work at all when he when he was still with us, but he, you know, he laid it out as uh, as multiple violations of United Nations and international law that make a country susceptible to invasion by the United Nations. And when he laid it out, I was like, Jesus, like, was I wrong this whole time? And, um, you know. I, I think that if uh, I, I think that war would, may may have found a lot more support if if it was just if Christopher Hitchens was the only person talking about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it, it had a uh, it, it you know it, there was no, a I, lot of propaganda back then, right? Let's put it there. Yeah, absolutely, and this gets to you know who do you listen to? Um, even I I didn't learn about why I was in Iraq until years later studying at Georgetown and understanding. Um, Colin Powell going to United Nations and the intelligence that was provided, um, the history of, of, of giving Saddam you know, windows of letting the inspectors in and those violations and violations. I didn't learn that until way later. But so that's a good answer to your question about me as a even as a, a young officer. I was mm. I was fighting where I was told to fight. And I think we we as a society have have recognized that after Vietnam. Right. We made a lot of mistakes as a as a country and treating of the soldiers like it was their fault they were fighting in vietnam and soldiers will fight where they're told this is the the beauty of our system is that we can question that right we can we can question why um was it worth it is is a question that we struggle with the veterans especially like afghanistan and iraq is as you see the end result 
And I try to, as you like, we're doing like, you know, understand why we were there, the, the decisions that were made under the context, context they were made. It isn't, if somebody tries to oversimplify war, then you probably shouldn't be listening to them because it wasn't as clear cut as we thought Saddam was involved in 9-11. Of course, that, that's not the answer. What was it? The Dolfer deport, uh, report uh, the, that talked about the weapons of mass destruction leftovers that had been there for years and like they were depleted. Um, you know, there, anyways, it was, there was the fog of war was literally made for, for the invasion yeah. of Iraq. It was, and uh, I went searching. For, I was a part of, I don't know if I can say that. I went searching for WMDs that there were, we thought there were remnants of it. And then there gets this question of what's a mass casualty versus what you know, WMD and there's mustard gas. There were, there were bad things that he had. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to get into this or not, but I think in the early eighties, I think some of those materials came from the United States, didn't it? Uh, that like, wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, if you if you understand what happened in Afghanistan, it was we created that in, in fighting Soviet Union and building up madrasas in Pakistan and training Mujahideen to go fight the Soviet Union. So history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Is there a element of that, like a small piece of that in the war with between Russia and Ukraine now, right now? Is it almost, is it a semi-proxy war between the United States and Russia because of the NATO involvement and all the weapons being sent there? Yeah, I mean, you, I don't think it's a semi. It's, it's about as, as proxy as you can get it. I mean, 50 nations are having Ukraine fight the biggest threat to global order in, in the world, but it's only Ukrainian is fighting. So by definition, that's a proxy. We're providing them weapons. They're doing the fighting. Yeah. And um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit here to, in a second, um, to, to more of the tactical stuff. But I just, uh, I just curious about your opinion on something. I, we have a prime minister up here in Canada that even if you're not a conservative, you're getting really tired of him. Um, especially like I, I was, I've been tired of him for years, the photo ops and the posing for the cameras and stuff. Am I being too hard on Zelensky when I when I see the sh the photo shoot that him and his wife did in front of these war torn buildings for like I don't know if it was Vogue or GQ or whatever it was, and I, I'm looking at that and I'm seeing a little bit of Trudeau in that guy now. Like, I, you know, he and I'm always a little weary when I see the media uh, start lionizing leaders like that. You know, that you know, start calling them heroes and. And and when the when the PR just seems way too good, I, you know, I, I get a little bit suspicious about that. And now I see this photo shoot. I think it was last week. I, I don't even have the pictures. I purposely did not bring them up because they just make me I get infuriated because I feel like the country is in the right. And and some political advisor sees it, sees it as an opportunity to, you know, to wow the world with how heroic they look and 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 i don't know if that's helpful to the war yeah i mean that's a you know that's a that's another um i i have been a fan since day one and i think he i know the vogue shoot you're talking about um you know it's it's about influencing the world and, and somebody viewed that as as a medium in which to influence the world and, and that like me, I will talk to any news agency, left, right, center. Clearly, um, you're on this show. So. <laughs> I, uh, I'll i talk to, and I've done, I was doing 15 to 20 interviews a day mm -hmm. because I, I feel like that was the right thing to do to either interpret what was being seen or give my own opinion based on my own studies. 
um, if you the the man rose to the occasion, so I think he does deserve his place as a iconic leader. And you can just compare him to modern examples of different leaders when when stuff gets hard. Um, he was asked to leave week one and it's also in the, in the messages and the use of the message and translating for different audiences. He needed, he needed to become a multifaceted symbol of their resistance and to be able to communicate that to other global leaders. That's what leaders are supposed to do. They're supposed to be the great communicators. Mm -hmm. Um, If he can do that with an image like snake Island, if he can do that with a, a comment, like, I need a ride. I don't need a ride. I need ammo Um, or other comments like that, that if you understand soldiering, you know, that has more weight than any weapon that can be put on the battlefield. This is the battle of narrative. So there's, there's other military theorists that say your war is just a contest of wills. Well, Zelensky's given everybody a masterclass in information operations. We call it, you know, influencing people's wills. And like I said, populations are the wills of different nations, right? So somebody thought Vogue was an outlet that could reach different audiences. I don't disagree with it. You know, whether you can criticize the taste in in the moment or, or the images that are put behind him. Uh. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And yeah. I think uh, maybe what I'm doing is contrasting it next to the things that you're talking about he did at the beginning. And finding it, uh, like, I I feel like he sort of wasted his political capital. I think it would have been a lot more effective if he was just doing his one of his normal press conferences. And he was like, listen, I care about my people. They asked me to do a Vogue photo shoot. And I was like, go fuck yourself. I'm here with my people. Like, I think that would have been probably a lot more powerful than than the actual photo shoot itself. But yeah, this is this is I mean, this is the, you know, globalness of war. I mean, he's become. He does have to become an icon to, to maintain 50 different people, your populations that are different, right? The population of Germany is completely different than the population of the you know, United States' thoughts on whether people should even care about Ukraine. Yeah, no, I know. it's uh, and, and, you know, they get a lot of people wondering why there's other conflicts in the world that people don't care about. But geopolitically, this is such a hugely important conflict. It could destabilize the entire continent. Right. Like it's not. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, can, it already is destabilizing the entire world. I mean, everything that we rely on, if you understand the forms of power, right, the, of national power in the interconnectedness that has allowed us all to thrive. Um, if you don't understand that this is breaking apart some of those interconnected, even the economic. Right. So most people see the economic. Right. You feel that in your, your pocket. But even the, the diplomatic relationships that have been there longstanding, um, Putin has disrupted that and had he been allowed to just take ukraine by force um it would have it would have rewrote the 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 book that has been the book that has led to global prosperity right where enemies can talk to each other to have trade relations and all of this if he would have been allowed to just do what he wanted to do it, it would have rewritten the book and, and to, i mean i'm on the side that 
he could he needs to be stopped even more now than just providing weapons or different weapons but um this is this is the greatest moment since world war ii uh, from a world history perspective i think because this is a this is a a powerful nation trying to rise up and dis- disrupt the global international order as in these are the things that we said as a world that nations could and couldn't do. You can't just because you have nuclear weapons do whatever you want. Right. Um, was it was it a fatal strategic error to not push back after he annexed Crimea in 2014? So your every decision has to be taken within the context of the moment, uh, which in which it, in which it happened. And at the time when personally, and I'm not a Ukraine expert. Although we've my the place I work for, we've sent people to study Georgia in 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 Crimea. Uh, you have to look at it through the vein of what was happening in the moment and what Ukraine was in the moment, right? Ukraine had to show the world that they they were a democracy and they were willing to fight for a democracy. So, could you have stopped all this back at the the annexation of Crimea? Maybe, uh, but Ukraine had to show that it it was a you know even what people would view as a legitimate democracy and, and of course they have they have a you, they've have struggled just like we did to become a legitimate democracy to deal with corruption to deal with bad actors to you know, deal with russian insiders and supporters and this conflicted you know minorities and things like that so you know, it's it would be revisionist history to go back and say, okay, we could have stopped all this back then. No, we could have stopped this when in, in February 24th. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, people smarter than me, uh, talk about, uh, the NATO NATO's role in this and whether or not, um, whether or not NATO had been a little bit too willing to, creep closer and closer to Russian borders. I, I hear people make, make that point. And then I hear other people, like I had Dave Troy on the other day and he was talking about how, you know, people who have that opinion are basically Russian propagandists. And I was just like, well, I mean, really? Like, I, I get that we always want to make sure that we people know what side we're on and we're on the good side and everything like that. But NATO's probably made a mistake or two, right? They're, they're not infallible. Is there any truth to that argument that maybe NATO sometimes, you know, bites off more than they can chew or, or you know, sets up bases maybe a little bit too close for comfort? Are we testing the waters with Putin? How does that work? So that that's a that's a geopolitical thousand you know pound question, of course. And and I've been in rooms, you know, back in 2014 with General Abizade, who was you know designated representative to Ukraine, and said that this is the narrative of Russia. But the problem is that that narrative about the NATO encroachment, right, Eastern expansion of NATO, is that it just it didn't match up with Putin's own words or or his own actions, right? His own words were Ukraine doesn't deserve to exist. It's, it is Russia. It had you know you can't say this is about NATO on one end and say okay, on February twenty third I will never be a member of NATO, and then you know February twenty fourth invade them. Uh, it, it it is a it is a part of the puzzle. I agree with that. Just like mm-hmm. you know, the, the reasons that you know, we were talking about about Iraq, um, there are many reasons. But when one man writes his own publication and pins his own name to it, like Putin did, and said, "You know, Ukraine is not 
a nation. They don't deserve to, they're not, they're almost working himself into genocide um, and, and working on the culture's ability to do evil things in that country. Um, I don't buy the NATO expansion thing. And, and if that was the case, how uh, this is, you know, where I think Zelensky goes into history books as a great leader, Putin will go into history books as the worst head of state in the, in history as miscalculating, right? Because before, before Putin invaded Ukraine, NATO was really questionable as an alliance, its value to the member states contributing even what they agreed to contribute, right? These are the conversations we were having and they were legitimate. Like what's the value of NATO? Well, Putin just created a very powerful alliance in NATO and now doubled his borders with NATO in his strategic blunder and having Finland and, and Sweden now a part of NATO is, is awesome. Yeah. Like yeah. what a great example of strategic blunder. What kind of military does Russia have? That's another part of the equation. And I want, cause I want to get back into um, where, where your expertise is, which is urban warfare. I'm assuming maybe I shouldn't assume, but I'm assuming that you have a pretty good idea of what kind of military Russia has. I know that they claim to have one thing, but they, probably don't have as powerful military as they say but i'm just trying to wrap my head around how big their military is and why uh other than the outmatched weaponry that ukraine is getting from nato and other countries why is it uh so difficult for russia to seem to make inroads into into i guess occupying ukraine so one i think geography still matters right so that's an easy answer to why russia's had so much trouble geography matters I mean, nobody has a big military anymore, even the U.S. military. So Russia is a is this, was was the second largest military by numbers on paper. Um, there is a conversation of paper doesn't really matter when you when it reaches the you know, the reality of combat. Even I, um, as a as a student of of modern war, thought Russia was a big bad giant right it was, it's in our strategic documents in the united states as as a peer competitor china and russia and then you had near peer what we call near peer um and i've been in briefings where people talked about russia was overmatching the united states and things like long-range artillery and all these things and, and we were we were for years building russia up and thought it had modernized this military had learned from the syria war had more combat experience than any other military having rotated all their general officers into Syria. Um, when it came down to it, what its fieldable army is, right? What what type of army can it field was about 200,000-ish. Uh, and then they have this mandatory system, mandatory service system. So they have conscripts, right? And, and the way, not to say mandatory ser service is a weakness um, because Israel has a mandatory service element uh, of their military that clearly is not a weakness, but the way they have of their conscripts, even of their 200,000 fieldable military, it, it's a, it's a big part of that are conscripts, people who are required to serve and serve for a short amount of time, get a little amount of training. Uh, so you have to break down, like, what is the, the military that Russia had by, by, you know, this, this framework, right? So there's their equipment and then there's their people. Mm -hmm. They, despite their modernization, still have a very Soviet model of people to fight a military. But what they attempted in Ukraine wasn't a Soviet-style attack. It was a 
know, a la Market Garden, a la Operation Iraqi Freedom, complete invasion of a country. And they've shown that that's not the military that they built or maintained. So the argument is that they have this, you know, this massive capability, right? If they could mobilize all the Russian, Russia is still a, a large country. If they can mobilize a million soldiers, would that make a difference? And the answer is no. Their equipment is was shy. It didn't even what they bought and could feel didn't work out. Um, but there's other things that are important when you're trying to do a massive war, and this gets your know, logistics right. So the the United States joining World War II was more about logistics than it was fighting, right? It was about the arsenal of democracy and providing trucks and food and water. So Russia, big giant military that didn't even sustain itself for over a week, and it just started falling apart on the battlefield as it spread itself to thin to invade the second largest country in Ukraine with this very small military. I mean, if you think about the Battle of Stalingrad, it was it was a million man army against another million man army. Mm-hmm. You can't replicate that on the modern battlefield, and Russia couldn't do that. A small army. I, I've been reading uh, also for the last few months a, a lot of people talking about uh, Putin using nuclear weapons, and I'm always really wary, um, both out of my ignorance of all things military, and also because I I don't want to think about it uh, because I don't know what uh, standard operating procedure is once one nation launches nuclear weapons. And then I started reading um, things about tactical nukes and whether or not it counts as a nuclear first strike if it's small enough. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but are we in danger of seeing either one side or the other use something like a tactical nuke or a nuclear weapon? Is that is that reasonable to think that that could happen? So I personally think not, right? So yeah, you have to study people like Mearsheimer and other people with ideals of mutually assured destruction, but also understand that, you know, everybody's nuclear arsenal was reduced for, for mutual reasons. Um, but the problem with thinking that it's a possibility in this war, in this context, right? One, you, it's really, if anybody can tell you they can predict the future, they're just, just crazy. Um, if you believe that, it's a rational actor, right? If you think Putin is evil, but also, but he's also rational, right? Um, I go back to all nations have one primary strategic goal, which is survival as a nation. Russia wants to survive as a nation. They, they believe in their nation. They want to survive. And I think Putin's number one goal is to survive as the government, the regime of Russia. And both those beliefs make me be- know that there's, there's a rule book, right? In this war, even in this war, like you can't cross this line, like, right. NATO can't put a NATO member. Ukraine's not a member of NATO. We, we, we made this rule book. So you can't, you can't help them. You can provide all the weapons you want. And I can't do anything about that. But if you step one foot into Ukraine with a NATO soldier, that's an escalation. Well, same thing with a nuclear biological chemical weapon. It's in the book. If, 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 Putin deploys even a tactical uh, weapon of mass destruction on a, on a single city, it would cross that red line and immediately um, in, implement what the book that we're following on. Now we can all go in and destroy Russia. 
uh, it's crossed the line of the global international order in the use of this weapon that I just personally believe if that he knows, despite what we call a nuclear sable rattling, if he uses them, then that that changes the, the world and it changes Russia would not exist anymore in the form that it does today. And, and and during the Cold War, the mutually assured destruction argument, um, you know, it, it sounds so strange, but it, it kept both countries safe in a sense, right? Because they didn't want to get annihilated. If if Russia did, say, uh, launch a nuclear attack in, in Ukraine, that doesn't necessarily mean that NATO or the United States or whoever would launch a nuclear strike back. That just that could just mean they get bombarded. Right. And it, it could just be in a normal airstrike way. Like they don't necessarily like what I'm trying to get at is, it, it, you know, if by the time the dust settles and I know this is a hypothetical, I'm just curious. Right. But if, but if by the time the dust settles, it turns out that Russia got annihilated, but they were the only ones to new, use nukes and they use them first. That is the best case scenario that you can hope for, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that line threat. I mean. I don't. I don't think that if if Russia used a nuclear weapon, I'm not saying then then we we would nuke them and and wipe them off the face of the earth. It would mean that we could then defend Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, in, in with direct action. In my opinion, what is the correct strategy then um, in an urban warfare setting when you have w- w- what's happening right now? Is it now just like wait them out, grind them down? Or, or is there an opportunity? Because if you're the if you're the country getting invaded, how does that impact um, things like timelines and resources and all those kinds of things? Like, you know, is, is there is, is there a certain deadline, a military deadline, where it's like, okay, you know, this is the scenario we need to be able to like stop them by this time so that we can like, I, I, you know, obviously I'm a guy that has no idea what he's talking about, so I'm I'm just trying to figure out timelines and things like that and how. Uh, what what the strategy is for Ukraine when they're in an urban warfare setting on their own turf? Yeah, so it, um, we have this term which means like Met TC, like uh, it, it's it depends. Um, this war has seen multiple phases. Like I said, the, the war changed on April third when Kiev didn't fall, and then Russia had to reduce its its objectives and say that they're only taking the Donbass at this point. They were never wanting all of Ukraine, mm-hmm. so that that. That matters to the strategy in which to defeat them. So time is a huge element for both sides. I personally think that it matters more to Russia. It can't sustain even the size of the military it has now indefinitely. It Mm -hmm. it can't support uh, soldiers in foreign hostile areas indefinitely. Um, It's not going to pacify Ukrainians. So to say you know, what they used to say about Afghanistan, right? You know, um, you have watches, we have the time. Like w- there is an element to resistance, uh, but this is this is war. Uh, Russia is is gets weaker every day, so I think they're under a timeline where Ukraine gets stronger. Now, in the urban areas where this matters, right? Um, can you just sit and wait them out? Absolutely not. Russia's shown what it does when it's being attrited uh it, it does evil things to to populated areas so you can't just wait and, and and hope for them you have to try to get to what's called a culmination point so the russian military does have a culmination point which means it can no longer advance 
and it can no longer hold what it has in the, in the cities that it takes. I, I'm a firm believer that all roads lead to urban. Uh, we can't talk about a fight in World War II or, or in Ukraine that we're not talking about cities because you're either fighting in cities or you're fighting for cities or you're fighting to get to cities. Um, so that's where the urban comes into play. At times, Ukraine has had to defend urban terrain in order for it to survive. Like that's where Russians wanted to go. You needed to defend to hold them so it wouldn't then become Russian occupied areas. Now there are elements where uh, Ukraine will have to attack to re to liberate. And of course it'll attack in a different way than Russia did, but this is all leading towards the strategic goals, right? Russia hasn't been able to achieve any of its strategic goals. Possibly you could argue the land bridge between Crimea and, and Russia you, through, through Mariupol and parts of the Donbass. But time is not on their side. They've lost 70 to 80,000 as in wounded is what the U.S. estimate now is. It's hard to take combatants words, either Ukrainians or, or the Russians, but take a third party who says that they've lost 70 to 80,000. Well, if you think that they deployed, you know, over, you know, around 200,000, that's, that's huge. Wow. They, yeah. they can't survive that indefinitely. Now, Ukraine has millions of people fighting for their right to live free. And they have tens of thousands of soldiers as units being trained at this moment. This is this this isn't no years long war. This is a months long war before Russia will culminate. Now, what does that look like once they do when they they have lost enough soldiers, lost enough land, you know, uh, actual terrain they could hold? What does that look like? Um, there's a couple of directions it could go. Yeah. Um as I stumbled through that last question, you might not be surprised to know that I once, uh, well, you would be surprised to know that I once tried to get into the Canadian military, but you probably won't be surprised to know that I tried to get in as a poet and I still didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's crazy. I have a, some amazing friends in the Canadian military and their involvement in the, in the mission in Ukraine was, was huge. And I, I think they're proud in their help in Ukraine post-2014 to train the military, which is, you know, a different military at this moment. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, we have a really small military, but the guys that I know personally that uh, have served, have served with distinction and honor and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're tough guys, but they're also smart guys and, and they care about their country. Right. So um, I want to get back to the book for a second. And I want to also ask um, your wife is over in, where, where is she right now? Is you allowed to say, or? She's home. She that, that oh, was in 2018. Home. Okay, when, when she was deployed. Yeah. How many military rules did you violate when you started a romantic relationship with her on the army base? <laughs> so zero. Uh, and my wife, like, was she wouldn't even talk to me, let alone fraternize with me while we were in. So we met in in combat in 2008. As in, mm -hmm. hi, nice to meet you. And it was after the as she was in a we were in a fall a small outpost with. 350-ish males, and there are only two females on that base. So she is, she wouldn't even talk to me just because of the image it might give other people. So no yeah. rules were broken. Okay, well, that's good. Good to know. Um, also, you know, what did it, I mean, what did it feel like when she was deployed and you were, you were at home? I mean, you're a man and that's your, that's your wife. Like, you know, the, the first thing you probably wanted to do was get on a, you know, an airplane and, and head on over there. But, um, but, uh, uh, and that this is a two part question. So there's that. And then the second part is, does the military even allow that kind of stuff? Like husbands and wives to serve in the same unit or no? 
Um, I think that they do. We've had, you know, the same unit. I can't recall, but plenty of spouses serving at the same time, especially during, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. I knew husband and wives who just had kids and had to leave their kids with grandma and both are deployed at the same time in different locations. I don't recall any living, you know, in the same unit, but there's no restriction to it. There's, especially if they're married beforehand and, you know, the military does do a good job and they always have with us while we were in this, keeping us in the same, you know, even when we're not at war in the same base, right? Cause that, that can even be a struggle. So what it feel like her being gone, it, it sucked. Yeah. Um, and it was actually our kids, even before she left, like, why can't dad go? Like, absolutely. Put me in coach. Uh, it, it, it was, I, I did not expect on how bad it would be on, on the, on us, on the family. And, and you know, hundreds and thousands of families have done it before, but maybe it was, I understood a little bit of what she was going through. And then I tried to protect her from the home life, which is its own issues of, she didn't want any, she wanted, she didn't want to be forgotten. Yeah. Was the biggest thing as a soldier deployed for, you know, we were deploying for 15 months when we met. Um, mm. She was only gone this time for nine months, but people change in nine months. So she really didn't want to be forgotten. And, and that's, that is a, a danger. You know, people, you know, adjust lives and she wanted, she wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So it, it, it was a daily thing. Um, given your theory on, um, on morale and FaceTime, did you ever have to reject all for the good of the, for the good of the fight? No, because I'm half one, serious because you know, it's 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 uh, what it's what you kind of wrote about, and I'm just curious to it see. Is, you know, it is. Yeah. Um, household six got what she wanted though. So if, if, if um, there's there's one vignette we put in there about Christmas where she wanted to be set up on a, a chair and to go through the Christmas experience with the kids, and it was really traumatic to her, as in you know, not traumatic as in like war traumatic, but it it really shook her up, and she had to go back to work. I would have recommended her not do that, but I, I deal with things differently. Yeah. Um, where I talk about in the book is where you're not going to control the connections, but there are moments like when you come back from a patrol and you decompress that it's not, you're controlling the environment. You're ensuring the natural bonding and decompression events that are cycles of, of coping and fighting in a war still happen. And that's what I, when I walked in in 2008, wasn't happening, right? It was, wasn't, there wasn't a leadership in the, in the process. So really that would have been on her end and I didn't have that level of visibility and I didn't ask her. Well, that's probably the right call, right? Like, you know, um, I, I listen, you're, you're, you're about uh, strategy. I know what your expertise is and, um, and because, uh, you know, we often see uh, soldiers uh, post military life as an examination on things like mental health issues and PTSD and all that. I was just wondering, you know, if, if you, if you can tell me what war teaches soldiers about humanity. So I, I can speak for myself to say what war teaches soldiers is a great question to ask. That's, I mean, every soldier experiences different things, uh, sees different parts of war and war exposes both the, the greatest elements of humanity, but also the worst, right? You meet the most evil and you get face to face with evil. I think personally, what I think that war shows soldiers is the commonalities in the, in the world, right? That human rights, uh, the pursuit of happiness, 
uh, is a universal global thing. And when you experience that, even in war, I think you bring that back. It also, where, where soldiers struggle is when you have to go to war, you form these tribes, you know, and I think Sebastian Younger did an excellent job in describing it, even though he didn't, wasn't a part of a military unit, that this tribal element, this human element of community gets really elevated in war and you you form a community and a tribe that is unbreakable right a bond that is forever and when soldiers come back they struggle when they get reincorporated to find other tribes to find that community feeling again it's still there but it has to be different right um and i think there's a general mattis said it one of the quotes that i stick to is don't for veterans is don't let the military service be the greatest thing you do in your life even though it is very honorable, it is a part of their identity for life. And it's a part of my identity. And I'm extremely proud of it. But I also, I continue living. I continue finding communities, finding tribes in my in my new life with my new identity. Um, and it's complex. But there's so much you take from war uh, about understanding the world and these this element of humanity. And that's really why I wrote that book, right? That book for the mini manual. I, I, it was completely because of the virtues I learned in war about there is, there is good and evil in the world. And I was, I was able, I had the knowledge to help good people who just wanted to live free, um, fight evil. So why I could not just not you stand by and watch that happen. Well, listen, um, it was a great pleasure talking to you. I, I, I enjoy the fact that, um, you know, you're, you're obviously a military guy and um, you're probably tough as nails, but uh, you, you do have, I asked that question because I can see inside you this streak of humanity when you talk. And, and I, I mean that sincerely. And, um, you know, you taking the time to, to talk to someone like me is just, you know, <laughs> just a, it's a real pleasure i i, I I'm, I'm being self-deprecating because uh this co conversations like this i find really interesting but it exposes me like i feel like i need to read so much more about something that i'll never experience but probably would it would probably be a good idea for me to understand better right like it's you know because yeah, yeah so um anyway i do that uh, too i i i'm be learning is a part of living for me so mm. um I learn, I, I experience every day by through the the books, and that's why I'm also motivated to tell my stories, their experiences. But I I, I learn from other people's experiences. Um, one thing I found too is that people want meaning. So if you try to degrade somebody in the and what they're trying, we all want meaning. We want purpose in life. We want people to look up to. We want. Um, we want this identity and this is where people get go down dark paths when they think they're by themselves it's a, it is a human race it is a humanity community tribes um it now in my elder years although you know i'm only in my 40s but i i did i went into military early so kind of retired um, i mm -hmm. can look back and, and 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 take the time to think about this thing like i'm still searching for meaning even in you know, talking to you it, it you listening to my stories and asking me questions gives me meaning. And, and I take something from, you know, talking to you and, and, and your community and your, your audience. And I'm learning from you. 
Well, we're definitely learning from you. Um, and from all accounts that I've read, uh, you served with complete distinction and honor, and you're continuing to contribute to the good fight by, you know, um, by writing that manual that's being utilized uh, by the Ukrainian citizenry and military. So I thank you for your service, and I thank you for your time joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks, James. That was John Spencer, everybody. That was a really, really powerful conversation. I, I enjoyed that. Um, I hope you guys did too. It's, uh, you know, it's amazing how little I know about the military. <laughs> uh, but I like talking to people that were there and talking to people that, I mean, this gentleman, John Spencer has, you know, he, he's part of the war that's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine. Again, his book, his, his handbook, the mini manual for the urban defender is being utilized, like I said, by not just citizens who, um, who are fighting against the Russian invasion, but also the military itself. So he's still contributing. Um, he, like I said, he served with distinction. And that was, uh, that was a great learning experience for me. Tomorrow, Spenny, 7 o'clock. I can't wait to talk to him. When our, pot, our paths crossed on the Dean Blundell podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, he, he, uh, Dean showed a clip of Spenny um, hanging out in the rain wearing uh, an octopus on his head and while on LSD. And I was just like, I, I do have something in common with him. It's going to be awesome. So when Spenny found out that we might be talking about politics, uh, I let him know that we could probably also talk about LSD. And that made him really happy. So expect tomorrow's conversation to be centered around our mutual appreciation for drugs and narcotics and his show the Kenny Kenny versus Benny was just uh it was a pioneer show like it, it was one of the greatest shows ever in Canada and, and I truly mean it. it's it's in my top five I love it so much um so anyways thank you everybody for joining thank you for staying up with us in the comments I really appreciate you guys you know who you are and we will see you tomorrow on Black Bolt. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. 
I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.